The Lord be with you, everyone. And um, before we get to tonight's message, um, first of all, uh, I, I misunderstood and the meeting in Albuquerque, I've been telling you it's Wednesday and then Friday. Well, the Wednesday meeting is a closed meeting for church leaders, pastors only. And so the meeting that's open to the public begins on Friday, and I look forward to seeing a good bunch of you there. It'll be great to meet you eye to eye. And secondly, very quickly, but very, very, very sincerely, thank you everyone who during these summer months have sent an offering that enables us to continue doing this. This is not underwritten. It is supported by the people of God who receive it and are blessed. And I thank you for sending the offering. Thank you for the notes you send with it. I read them, everyone, and bless you and pray for you. And so I want to continue what I did last week. Um, apparently last week really got through to some of you. I, I've had more response um, to what I said last week than some for a long time. And so I want to continue finish that up because we talked about the 10 scouts back there in the book of Numbers, but there's always Caleb and Joshua, the two who were utterly different. And so um, a text, if we want a text, uh, I really it's all of chapter 13 and 14, but um, in chapter 14 and verse 24, it says, But as for my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and follows me unreservedly or fully, I will bring him into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall possess it. Um, and that puts in a nutshell... The, this other two, Caleb is the one mentioned, but Joshua was 100% with him. And so, this whole story, the story of the 10 scouts or leaders of the tribes that had represented their tribe in going into this land of promise, this land that the Lord called the land of rest, uh, the 10 of them, and then the two, the 10 who stood together in their unbelief, and the scripture is very plain, especially in Hebrews chapter 4, where this is brought into the New Testament. And in Hebrews chapter 4, it, it is very explicit that they didn't enter the land because of unbelief. Now, I want you to listen to me very carefully. These 10 chaps who entered not into the land and were able to sway the entire nation into their camp and not go into the land. It, it isn't that they uh, had a general unbelief, disbelief concerning God. Please understand this. They had been counted, or they were counted, as part of this people, Israel, of the Old Testament, that they were known throughout that area of the world as a people who had a God that was out of all realms that they'd ever thought of God. 
a God who loved them and cared for them and brought them out of slavery in Egypt and brought and so on. The, these were part of the people who every morning would go out at dawn and there they would find out on the edge of the camp the supply of manna. Incidentally, the word manna is an untranslated Hebrew word which means what on earth is it? <laughs> they went out and here was food and it, was, it had everything they needed in it, but they never did find out what it was. And so the first time they picked it up and said, manna, and that's it got the name, manna. It, it was God's provision physically. And these men had eaten their manna for breakfast on the morning they went into the land of Canaan. They lived with that cloud of God's glory above them and in the midst of them that was shone like fire at night, that they were part of this. And so, they, no, it isn't that they just didn't believe God. They lived in the middle of the miracles of God. When it says that they did not believe their unbelief, now, now hear me, this is most important, their unbelief, was a very specific kind of unbelief. It was concerning the opinion that God had of them. Did you hear me? They would not believe what God had said concerning them. Can I say that again? They lived in the middle of God's abundance, which they received, received it, by his grace, that they knew his guidance, they knew his love power toward them. But when it came to what he said about them, they not only backed off, they said, absolutely not. And that is the unbelief that kept them from the land of Canaan. And that's what I'm talking about tonight. The, the, this, this unbelief that I just cannot believe what God says about me. You see, the identity that God the Creator, when He made us, and of course, when I say us, I am including every human. We are this human race, which, and we are connected Certainly here in the United States, we, we find it very hard to believe that. We believe everybody is independent. Um, John Wayne, in his independence and do it alone myself, is the icon of the American. Um, but that might not be true of many of you, especially over there in Africa. I know you, you live as a unit, as a tribe. But uh, the fact is, we as a human race are one people. We are like a tree with roots that go into many branches and twigs and leaves. It's one tree. We, the human race, God created us. And in created us, he gave to us an identity. He announced over us who we really are. And that identity that was given to the human race in creation, that's how God knows us. Please understand me. He, he, he is not interested in how we might contradict him. 
Um, he knows us. He knows us and he believes in what he knows. That is, he believes that this isn't a pipe dream. We really are who he made us to be. That's our identity. And he knows us that way. And so these uh, ten fellows are contradicting, blatantly contradicting God's opinion of them and his faith in his own work in thus creating us. They, they, they refused to allow the thoughts of God concerning them to be replaced. They had thoughts, I mean, to become the replacement, rather. They, they had thoughts of themselves, is what we talked about last week. They, they looked at themselves. Do you remember that in the last verse of chapter 13? They looked at themselves and said, we know who we are. We are like grasshoppers, which is disgusting to say that. God made us and made us in his own image and likeness. And these men shrugged that off as irrelevant and said, we know who we are. We're nothing but insects. I mean, they didn't even say they were sort of weak men. They degraded themselves to being insects, grasshoppers. And of all insects, I mean, not even a stinging wasp, a grasshopper, you know. Not even, not even a, a, a black widow spider <laughs> that would scare people. No, grasshoppers, uh, poor, insignificant little creatures that um, always look as if they're apologizing for existence and, and, and just hop away because they sort of got in your way. And, and instead of embracing the, we have to say, glorious identity that was given to them as a gift at their creation, with a, with a body that fitted the identity. They tossed it aside. They said, we know who we are. We're not that. Well, what is identity? I ask every one of us tonight, who are you? That, that's it. That's the, who are you? And I don't want you to answer that quickly. Who are you? Um, your identity, you see. Your, your identity is the answer to the questions that you might have asked. Not too many people ask them. We're afraid of being alone. We're terrified of being alone in the silence, you know. Uh, that's why we have music blasting all the time. Uh, and we have to be talking and being, because we're terrified of being alone in silence, when these kind of questions rise up, who am I? Have you ever asked that question? Who am I? Who am I? We grope for answers. Who am I? Well, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean when I look at I and call I me, who am I? You go, you see, we're going deep into our core being. When I look at I, that is my core self, my I-ness. 
and I, who, who is this I? Who am I? Where do I fit in the great scheme of things? Uh, and I have, on very few occasions, I stopped doing it because people absolutely fell apart when I did. Um, I, I've, I've been in home meetings, and you know, and asked, okay, everyone tell us, who are you? See, that, that's another way of saying it. Who are you? And the everyone in the room answered in terms of, well, some answered in terms of race. They they would say, well, you see, I'm an American. Well, that's not your that's not your identity. That comes way way down the line. Who who is this American? Who is this African? Um, others, uh, you know, would, would bring in their gender, their family, um, their status in life. Most would bring in their work when I ask, who are you? And they would say, well, I'm an accountant. No, no, I want to know who is the person who does accounting, you say. Others would talk about their abilities and their talents. Uh, some even gave the name of their church. You know, they're a member of, or they are a, a Baptist or whatever. Um, no, no, no. Now, now, maybe I've got your attention. I'm not even asking about your religious beliefs. Who is the person that believes that? And then, of course, it becomes a very, uh, what, awkward question. Some people are really put off by it because... We, we put on masks to appear or to project an identity that we believe will be acceptable to others. There are some people who carry around a bag of masks, and, and so they're in this company, and they put on a mask, and they seem to be this kind of person, and they go somewhere else, and they put on another mask. There are many people who put on the mask in the church parking lot. You know what I mean. The no, no, all that is surface stuff, is surface. That's not what I'm asking. Who are you? Where do you come from? Or should I say, who is your true parent? Who is your real father? What, what's your origin? Who are you, you see? What's the meaning to my being? Or you could say, I suppose, what is my amness? When I say I am, what, what is that amness? You, you have this um, very uh, in your face in the book of Genesis when Adam, who of course knew his identity and, and had received it, and and he lived it, but it is brought out very forcibly that when he he was alone, and um, it's before Eve came along, and and so the 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 Lord brings to him all of the animals, and, and says that he's to name them. Do you remember that? And, and as he looks into the face of the animals. He doesn't find a reflecting self. That is, I am of a different order. I, I, th these animals 
in one sense, started the same way as I did. They came from the mouth of God, and they're made of the same dust of the earth. There's a lot to be said that we, we, we relate to the animals. Ah, but then we come to a point where, no, we don't. There, where we come to a grand canyon that, that we can't pass that over the, on the other side of the animals. We, we stand utterly other, totally other than all other creation. And when Adam looked into their face, you know, you, you, you can look into the eyes, and I, I, I look into the eyes of, of my dog or, or my cat, and, and it might, you know, it, it knows me, and, and you could say, look, he's looking at me, he loves me, or whatever. But the, no, but even so, you see, there's a difference. And and the dog can look at you and uh, pant and put out his tongue and all the rest of it, but it, it, it's not me. I, I stand other than. It's interesting when I, I was with, with a game warden deep in the jungles in Africa and we were walking through the bush and he said that whenever there's the presence of one of the animals of the bush, go down on your knees and crawl or stoop, because he said every animal recognizes human because we walk erect and we send out an energy of human. There's an identity that projects and the animals know it and in their fear might attack. Oh yeah, we're different, you see. Well, who are you? What is the difference? This can be very upsetting, and I've had people break down uh, and just, I mean, lose it when I begin to press this. It's interesting, Jesus said in Matthew 11 that only the Father, God the Father, only the Father knows the Son. Now, Jesus said that of himself. He, He said, only the Father knows who I am, which means that all the opinions of all the people around him, you can just throw them away. Only the Father knows who I really am. It, you know, the, he, he lived among the people of Nazareth. He worked, uh, he had a carpenter shop on Main Street, and, and everybody knew him. At least they thought they did. But he was literally infinitely more than any of them ever imagined. And all their opinions of him even the opinions of, of his, his family, extended family, they, they'd they all missed it, you see. Um, and that was revealed. Jesus had his identity revealed to him by the Father. Well, okay, let, let's put it this way. God the Father knew you before you were born. Now, that's a mouthful. <laughs> you, you wonder sometimes if God knows you? Good grief. He knew you before you were born. And, and knowing you, knew you with the identity that he has given to you in, in, in his forming you. Okay, I know you want to, uh, it's in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 where the father says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. 
You say, well, that was Jeremiah. No, you, you can't read the Bible like that. You can't say that God didn't know, didn't have a clue about anybody, but Jeremiah, he knew. No, no. This is, is one of those times when just a tiny window opens and you catch a glimpse of things that you better remember because it, it's, it's there. Once you see that, it's, it's there, but it's not as evident. This is about you as well as Jeremiah. Listen to me. Before you were formed in the womb. And notice that even. It says, before I formed you in the womb. So even, even the, the formation of your body in the womb, God claims authorship to that. But he says, before that, I knew you. I knew you before you were born. Now, that makes me feel very warm and loved and known. I'm not a stranger to God. He doesn't look at me and say, now, who, who are you, you know, and begin looking through file system. To my... No, he knew me. He's known me since before I was born. And that's picked up in Psalm 139, um, especially the formed in the womb part. Uh, David said, and now he is, okay, you could say, well, that's David. Well, you've got to dismiss the entire Bible then. You can't no, David is giving us a revelation, not of something that's unique to him, but a revelation of who you and I are. He says, you created my inmost being. So he said, that, that core me, that me that I truly am, you, you created that. You called it forth. You gave it being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Now, have you never questioned this? I mean, who starts your heart beating at 18 days into pregnancy for no reason that a scientist has ever figured out, your heart spontaneously begins to beat. Could, could somebody admit that maybe that there is the presence of the Creator in the mother's womb and He started your life? You're fearfully, which means you, I, I look at myself and I take my breath away. You're wonderfully made. And the word wonder there in the Hebrew means something man cannot do. Your works are wonderful. Same word. He says, my frame, my anatomy was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, that was your mother's womb. When I was woven together. I love that phrase. When, when your tiny body... Hardly has a shape to it yet, but it was woven together like cloth is put together in the depths of the earth, which was a Hebrew expression again for the womb. Your eyes saw my unformed body, and he didn't need to have that special photography to get a look at you. He is in the womb with you, even when you had an unformed body. And he says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That is, I was known. Do you know who your parent is? 
You say, well, my mother and father. Yes, but it takes three to make a baby. You see, it, God is your original father. I don't care who you are. don't care whether you believe that or not. It's a fact. Ephesians 3.14 says that he, he is the father of every family on the face of the earth. Or what about in uh, Acts 17 where it says, in him, and when he said this, interestingly, he was talking to absolute pagans in Athens. And he says, in him, in God the Father, we live and move. And the, the tenses there would be that he moves upon us and we move with his move. That, that he's intimately associated with our life. In him we live, we move, and have a being and the Greek word there would maybe better translated as as we have or, or we possess our I amness. Hey, that's what we're talking about, isn't it? In Him we live, in Him we move, in Him we have our I amness. And then two verses down, it says, "We are His offspring." Please sit back and think about this. This is who your father is, your true father. This is who your original parent is. This is who you are by, by creation. You see, by, by creation. It is he who made us. It is he who defines who we are. And it is he that gives to us our identity. Well, what, what is that identity? Let's say this, the will of God, oh dear. Uh, do you know, I'd like to scrap that uh, phrase. It's totally useless. It has been so rampaged by religion that it is a useless phrase. I know people, and it's very possible that some are listening to me because this is very widespread. The, the will of God um, well, that, that just means, you know, should, should, I, should I go and shop in that store or that store? What's the will of God? Or should I be in this town or that town? Should I get this job or that job? Should I marry her or her? Um, should I be a missionary in Africa or a missionary in Hong Kong? You know, oh, please, please, would you please shred that and never try to put it back together? The will of God. Let's change the word will because... It's a massive word, and we've got stuck on this will. No, let, let's put instead the desire of God. The desire. What, what, what is the desire in the very being of the Holy Trinity? Or we could say, what is his passion? What, what is the passion of his love that moves him? What does he want? Or could I say, and I know this will upset some people, but um, we, we've got to realize our God is a lot more than the flat, dead thing you have in theology books. No, his desire, his passion, his wants, the dream of God. What was the dream? What was in the mind of God when he would create you? Think about that. You see, 
Why, why would God create us? Well, he created us out of love. You don't, you don't think that God in, in some, and I say it again, that dead, flat, nothing, where God just is, is the one that speaks in a voice like Charleston Heston and, you know. No, no. Why did God create? Why did God create you? Because of this love of God. The New Testament word agape, this, this love that is, it is beyond any word to really finally define. We can say a thousand things about agape, but it blows our mind. The love that God is, the love which gives us the Holy Trinity, where the Father gives himself entirely to the Son, and the Son pours himself into the Father, and the Holy Spirit is the celebration of love. Love. And God is love to the point there is, shall I say, the overspill, so that God would reach beyond himself, and he would create and, and this whole universe is an expression of his love. And this planet is alive with the love of God. Do you ever thank God for the flowers? Because you're the reason he created them. That, that, that they should delight your eye, delight your senses. You ever thanked him for the birds? You ever welcome the birds to your garden? They're gifts of God. He loved and he filled the created planet with, with his love. But then he made us. Why, why did he make us? Listen to me very carefully. The passion of God has always been since before creation. That, that's why I say the dream, the intention, the imagination of God. He would create a human and he would join with that human. He would be that human without ever stop being God. And he therefore would be in the fullest sense in the human so that God would be God, but he would be God through a human. Have you ever thought that's why he created us? All, all the creation... And us as the head of that creation is about that desire of God. God desired to enter human and be God in the human without ever displacing the human, but rather exalting the human and never ceasing to be God yet to be God in our humanity. I say again, the creation and specifically the creation of you is about that desire. So what's the will of God, if I'm going to use that expression again? That whoever you are, wherever you are, under whatever circumstances you find yourself, whatever job you are pursuing, that he, your creator, would actually experience that in you and with you. And so... The will of God is not that you go here or go there. It is that wherever you are, there you shall live your life out from God, and God shall experience your life in you and through you 
and that your life would be meshed with God. Now, that's that's not the right word because there's a separation there. Now, you, he, he would be dwelling within you seamlessly, simultaneously. You, you would participate in, you would share in his God love life. Where do I get that from? He made you in his image and his likeness. And how can you say image? Well, that's like looking in a mirror and you see yourself. Well, not, yes, that's an image. But that image of me is a dead flat thing. I mean, it has no personality. It's just a flat image of me and whatever I do, it does. That, that, you can't put God in a mirror. You're not the mirror in which people see this flat, robot-like thing of God. No, the only way you can image God is for God himself to be there. When God said he made you in his image, he made you so he would look at you and see himself while you still are a creature human. But in that humanity, he would look at you and see himself and the likeness of God. Oh, no, don't, don't get taken off on religion, which took this word and messed it and said, well, we've got to try to be like Jesus. It doesn't say try. It said in the likeness of God. Not a miserable, pathetic try. No, the likeness of God. Who can be like God? Only God. And therefore, God would dwell in us and we would live from a love that is beyond ourselves. So you see, uh, I think I've upset some people because your geography is not the will of God. Now, don't go running off and say, I've got to go back to where I came from. Oh, no, you see, you missed the point. Now you're there. Well, there, wherever there is, is the place to express this reality of union with God. You say, well, we, I, I thought it was the will of God. I, I would be a, a missionary or I, I would, you know, enter the ministry. Well... That's um, maybe so. But the fact is, if you're a road worker or if you are a server in a restaurant, that's quite equal to what I'm saying. Because wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you do, the will of God, this desire, this passion, this dream of God, that he would be that. God would know what it is to be a restaurant server. I'm I'm not playing and I'm not exaggerating. God's desire is to know being God within wherever we are. Hmm. And so, the will, the desire, the passion of God is that you fulfill your design. That original blueprint that he said is your identity, that you'd fulfill it. You'd be the reflection in the sense I've said. You would be the residence of God in the earth, the person in whom he lives. So the will of God is not about doing in any way, shape, or form. It's nothing to do with doing anything. It's being this person who dwells in God and God dwells in them. So he created us. 
and he was right there in your mother's womb. He knew you by name before you were there in your mother's womb. And he pronounced over you the only human that he knows, which is that you were created into your mother's womb with the identity of one who would be the image and likeness of God. And as, his crea- as your creator, he holds you within himself. Nowhere in Scripture does he get the idea he made you and then walked off and did something else. And there you are, there this person totally disconnected and separated from God. No, no, no. Which brings me to the fact that sin is all about identity. Did you know that? See, I, I thought you know, sin was, you know, you did a naughty thing. You, you ate the fruit of the tree, you bad boy. Now you're going to be damned in hell forever. No. Read that over and over again. I've read it about 10,000 times. And, and it begins to emerge what this is all about. Sin was and still is all about this question of identity. Okay, I I think I've made it as plain as I can. God gave to us the gift of, of an identity birthed within the being of God, that we creature humans would bear his image and likeness. He identified us as his offspring. So now comes Satan's lie. And he turned everything upside down. God gave the gift. Satan very cleverly essentially said some gift. He's not the giver. He's the one who's holding back. And he's holding back the secret of secrets. If you knew the secret that God is holding back from you, boy, it would make you into independent gods. That is, you see, you, you wouldn't have to bear his image. You'd have your own image of yourself as God. You wouldn't have to be the receiver of him on some sort of eternal welfare. You would, you'd live from out of yourself. You, you, you'd be it. That lie God, that that identity he's supposed to have given you, that's a lie. He says says you're you're perfect so that God can express himself through through this body, through through this head. No, 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 you're not perfect. You're, You're not enough, God says, that you were enough and he rested. And having made you, no, no, you're not enough. Good grief. You're far short of your potential. Stop groveling before God when you can be his equal. And they believed that lie. They believed it. And in so doing, they distorted the face of God in their own minds. That is, they were saying, he's not our father. We, we have no connection to him. But also, because it was a lie. So as they distorted the face of God and said that he was other than all that he had revealed himself to be, in that same moment they withered in their own estimation to being less than 
the identity God had given to them. Because, of course, you can't be an independent God. You're, you're a creature. You can only be the receiver of the limitless gift of God himself. Well, if, if you set up a barrier, then in your mind I'm separated from God. Now I've got to find myself as God and find there's nothing there. That, that was the lie of Satan. They withered now. I, I'm not what I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to be an independent God and look at me and look at me. I, I'm not. I'm ashamed. And that, that's really where, where Satan is. See, we say Satan and it, it's become sort of his name. But actually, that, that we just didn't translate the word. Satan means the accuser, essentially. It's it's the accuser. So so when we say Satan, stop thinking of, of some uh, you know comical thing with horns and that. That's all that medieval religion gave us. No, instead it's the it's the energy of accusation. The accuser accuses us, condemns us, and floods our thoughts with his accusation and condemnation and his disgust of us. For that friendly snake really hissed its hatred of the human race. And I say again, Satan, the accuser, floods our thoughts with his accusation of us, with his condemnation and his utter disgust of us. And we accept that because in our ignorance, we, we think it's our thoughts. We, we think we are thinking those thoughts and, and, and we, we catch on to them and we believe they're true, and we form out of all these thoughts that arise from within us and which come to us from the accuser, and we put it together, and we form our identity. If you can call it an identity, it was a poor, formless thing, almost like an amoeba. It's changing shape all the time, depending the mood I'm in. Mankind became lost in a wilderness of a confused identity. I don't know who my original parent really was. That's big confusion. I don't even know where I came from. I don't know who I am. And then we have people with PhDs who look at an ape and say, my granddad, I mean, good grief. We don't know our origin. Don't know our parent. In Isaiah chapter 1, you, it's, you can read it. It's very powerful. It, it says that an ox or a cow knows its owner. You know, cows have enough sense that they will begin moving toward the barn for milking. And, and they know that, that that chap who comes every day is their sort of owner and, and and so they they go there because that's where where they're going to continue being good cows. 
I mean, even your dog knows you're its owner. Even your dog can, can know the sound of your car and is there at the door to meet you. you. You see? And yet, mankind doesn't know. The, the one who created doesn't know their parent. You see, if, if we knew that God is my father, my dad, is my parent, for within God is, is all the female and the male together. And, and if we knew God the Son, Jesus, is our brother, because he took to himself our humanity. Well, if you knew the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, your dad, your brother, and the very explosion of love is your home, then you wouldn't be lost. But it's because we don't know who we are. We wander through this wilderness, and really, in many respects, we're saying, would somebody tell me who I am? And I I hear it especially from teenagers in 20s these days. They're saying, I'm trying to find myself. Yeah, see, you'll only find yourself in the face of the one who made you. We have become orphans by the brainwashing of the accuser and his lies and the ignorance that he brought to us. And this is of tremendous importance because our identity, how I see my I amness, the, the person I believe myself to be, sets all the boundaries of my life. It's because I believe this is who I am, then this is what I can do. This is, this is my potential. This is where we can go. You see, you can never be more than how you perceive your identity. And that's why there are so many today who just sit um, and, and they neither work nor hardly live. Um, they just... They're, they're, they're living in, in, in some sort of vague fog. They don't know who they are. And therefore, there's nothing within them to become who they are, you see. It can't be more than your, the, what your, you know your identity. And, and so you could say we live and we create our lives within the boundaries set by how we believe ourselves to be. And if we're believing Satan's lies, if we're believing everything my senses and flesh report to me, it's confusion. As I said, we change our identity by the minute. And our identity, this this sense of who I am, governs us from within. It can either enslave us to a tiny prison cell of life and say, that's, that's who you are, that's what you deserve. Or it can be the, the drive within us to a glorious life in Christ. You see, it's my identity that actually, very quietly, but gives me the permission to be the person I believe myself to be. And also... That image of my identity forbids me to even think of being other than what I think I am. 
I, I was raised in, um, well, I suppose you could say I was raised in poverty in many respects. I certainly was born on the wrong side of the tracks. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if I was born on the tracks. <laughs> but um, I, I remember as a, a young kid, I, I would see others who went to restaurants, you know, fancy restaurants. Uh, and I, I would say at the dinner table, couldn't we go to that restaurant? And my mother would look in horror at me and she said, that's not for the likes of us. Never forget that phrase. Not for the likes of us. I remember when I first discovered people go on mountains and, and ski. Couldn't I do that? That's not for the likes of us. People drive cars. Could I get a car one day? That's not for the likes of us. Why? Because that was the image of a family that had been ground into the dust, you might say. And, and that's, that's who you are. Get used to it. This is, you, you, you go to work and you walk to work and, and, and we eat at this table just whatever we can get. And all that other stuff, well, that's for other people. There's not for the likes of us. It took a, an act of God's spirit to open my eyes to see that it was for the likes of us. And that was when my understanding of my own identity radically changed to join with what God said about me. And that changed everything. It changed my authority. It changed my permission. I, I could go. And in fact, when I first really saw who I was, straight from the hands of my dad, my real parent, in this family where God the Son was my human brother. It changed me so much when I went back to England. I went to all those restaurants. <laughs> I didn't need to, but I had to. I went in there and I have a right to be here because I know who I am. I... I got me a car. You know, it's, that might sound stupid to you, but it changes your whole life. You see, your identity image shapes your future at every level. And, and have you noticed the way you see yourself connects with people with an invisible energy? And people who fit your energy are attracted to you. And, and if your energy is that of worthlessness, you, you are attracted to people that only make that worse. Huh. See, our perception of our identity then determines our relationship to God. If we believe Satan's lie that we're supposed to be everything in ourselves, well, then I am no good. I'm unworthy. I, I didn't make it. I couldn't keep the command. And, and so I cringe before God because in my imagination, fitting my identity, I imagine God to be a judge. And so I cringe before him. He's not. He's my dear dad. He's my father. He loves me with an endless love and passion, and he still sees me as made in his image and likeness. But I don't, I'm in darkness. I'm, I'm controlled by the accuser, and so I cringe. I'm ashamed of myself. I'm ashamed of being just human. I'm ashamed of all my silly little things that humans do. 
and condemned because we believe Satan's lie about our identity, which means that I think of myself as unworthy. Dare I say this, it's not so important what you think about God. The first thing we've got to see is what he thinks about us. What does God believe about you? How does he see you? See, you may be lost in the sense that you wander around wondering who you are. But the fact is, to be lost, you have to be owned by someone. Or you can't say you're lost. You know, you know I can't lose your pen. You can, I can't, because it's yours. And you can't lose my pen, it's mine to lose. Or hold one. So when we say such and such is lost, we mean they have an owner. They have a parent. They have a family. They just lost contact because of Satan's lies. And that was the ten. The ten scouts, I say again, they didn't have a general unbelief. They knew God was very real, and they knew that he supplied. But when it came to this, though they lived in the middle of miracles, this specific unbelief, they did not believe what he said about them. They didn't believe the identity that God had given that God knew. He looked at that. He knew their identity. And he knew that they would go into that land and he would be in them. And it didn't matter what was there. They, they, they would live bigger than life. They would have a wisdom beyond their brains. They would have a strength and they would have a refuge. And the Lord himself would go before them. Um, but no. They contradicted him. They said, we know who we are. We're just crickets. We're grasshoppers, ready to be trodden on. Oh, maybe they heard what my mother said. They looked at the land of Canaan. They said, it's not for the likes of us. We're just grasshoppers. This is for somebody strong. This is for somebody who can take it. We, we don't know how, we, we're no good, we, we can't do that. And so they contradicted God. They placed an imagined barrier. Because see, people say, well, he's separate from God. No, that, that's your imagination. You, you think that, that God said to Satan, okay, I guess you won this round, now I'm separated from my people. You're crazy. Satan has no way whatsoever of ever changing God's mind about you. You say, well, God, God hates sinners. Where'd you get that from? Uh, just a bit. God hates sinners? You, you mean you've missed the incarnation? Has no one ever told you that God himself so loved you that he became one of us in order to embrace us and carry us through death, the shedding of his blood, resurrection, and bring us to our true identity as his child, his beloved, and the residence of him on this planet. No, he didn't matter what they said, didn't matter what they thought, didn't matter what they believed. 
God just looked at them with love and said, I'm still with you, and I love you, and I still know who you are. You are made in my image and likeness. You're the only place I want to be in this entire universe is you, my residence. But they refused. Now, I took so long in preparing to talk <clears throat> about Caleb that I have only just now got to the point where I'm going to talk about Caleb. But I think, I think I've given you seeds. If you will let them grow in you this incoming week, we will talk about Caleb and Joshua, who did receive the knowledge of God concerning who they were. And that can change absolutely everything. But for now, I want you to begin to ask the questions I pose. This, for some of you, this will be a very challenging hour that we've been through. And to recognize that you might have lived a long time without really knowing who you are how you truly are, to the point where you live in who you are. You see, with the minutes I've got left, the incarnation, that is when God actually became flesh, that is when that desire of God comes to full fulfillment, when God came and took up eternal residence in our human persons, that he took to himself a genuine human body that was formed in the womb of the Virgin Mary from a speck of life and grew for nine months. You could say that was his passport into our human race. And when I look at Jesus, I look at Jesus and now what do you see? We, for a long time, there's, people tend to swing in extremes. And, and so they look at Jesus, and I'm going back now especially a few decades, and, and they would say he was an extraordinary man, and they call him the, the prophet. Well, no, that's not true. He is God, God the Son, actually incarnate, embodied, who became one of us. So he is God, but he is man, human, in every possible way we can think. He was tempted in every way like as we are, yet without sin. And he translated the will and the heart and the mind of the Father into our human existence. You say, well, that was, that was Jesus. Well, what do you mean by that? You mean he was an alien? You know, a Martian that turned up among us? No, he's one of us. That was the whole point. He's one of us. His enemies said he blasphemed because he claimed to be Messiah. God with us. They were enraged because they had no clue that he was anything but a human. That's what he looked like, spoke like, acted like. 
The people of Nazareth said, we know who he is. He's the carpenter. Don't, don't give us all this other stuff. This is so important. He is one of us. And God fully lived in him, which means that your body, a human body, is perfectly wired to be the eternal dwelling place of God. No adjustments had to be made. Came through the same womb as you. Came out through the birth canal just like you. Only God lives inside. So it means that God can live inside this body. God can think inside this brain. Yes. You see, Jesus is the validation of that design in the beginning. God said, I'm making human to make him my dwelling. Well, Jesus took that to the extreme. God really did come and dwell inside of our humanity. And he who is God really bead God in our human. So it doesn't look like God. He, he, he didn't, you know, no lightning, no thunder, no... He, he, he didn't do mighty miracles with flashes of lightning out of his fingers. No, he's actually... <laughs> that's not God. God is love. And when God became human, what we see is that God love pouring through his life and his words and his actions. And that one human is equal to all of us, of course, because he created us. And so without your permission, I'm sorry, but it was without your permission, he embraced every one of us took us into himself and carried us through death and brought to death the accuser and the lie and the whole darkness that went with it. And when he rose from the dead, you rose with him in order to discover your new identity. Well, it's not a new one, is it? It's been there since the beginning. But for us, it's new because our eyes are opened. And that's See, some people say, well, I, I got saved. And I say, what do you mean by that? And he says, well, I, I won't go to hell. I'll go to heaven when I die. Oh, what a miserable thing. You see, that, that means you're just going to live out the rest of your life, just hanging out in order to die and get whatever you say you've got. That, and that's what people have now made the word saved to mean. It doesn't mean that. Saved comes in the word salvation. Salvation means that I come now alive to life right now. And that life right now is salvation being saved. If there's any death involved, it was I died with Christ. It's not when I die. It's, no, I died with Christ. And when I rose, I, with, I, I entered into heaven. I'm not going to heaven. I'm here now in heaven. And, and whatever's beyond death, only this it will be multiplied 10 trillion times. But I'm living there now. And I know God, my Father, my Abba, my Dad, Jesus, my elder brother who went to hell for me, and brought me out. And the Holy Spirit 
who dances within me 24-7, opening my eyes yet more and more and showing to me who I truly am in Christ. Okay, I want to finish with um, a text, and it was sent to me by a um, pastor in Myrtle Beach, Pastor Rick. I'm going to be there in, in the spring, in April. And um, after last week, he sent me this text. And honestly, uh, I've totally missed this. And yet this puts really into context everything we're saying. It's in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 11 to 14. And it's from the message um, paraphrase where it says, Dear, dear Corinthians, I can't tell you how much I long for you to enter this wide open spacious life. We don't fence you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a very small way. I'm speaking as plainly as I can and with great affection. Open up your lives. Live openly and expansively. And that's the word of the Lord. Now the blessing of God who is almighty love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit bless you with the opening of your eyes to discover in the brilliance of his light who you truly are in union with Christ Jesus. So I bless you, and that is the way it is.